Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. You're listening to the Life as Leadership podcast. Are you looking for motivation and encouragement on your path to becoming a better leader? If so, you've come to the right place. Keep listening to find a community of leaders committed to learning and taking action to improve their world. The Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. Here's your host, Josh Friedemann. When was the last time that you felt social pressure to be doing less in your life? We live in a world where there is always a drive to do more and be more and to be convincing others that we are more than we maybe even are. And while we may have a sense that we should be doing less than we currently are, we should take more of a break, we tend to feel pressured to always be doing more. But what if that was actually counterproductive? What if you could actually get just as much, if not more, done by working less? Our guest today has just come out with a new book suggesting that that is possible. And speaking of our guest, she is an award-winning journalist, a professional speaker, and an author. In her 20-year career in public radio, she's been an executive producer and has anchored programs including Tell Me More, Talk of the Nation, All Things Considered, and Weekend Edition. She also anchored presidential coverage in 2012 for the PBS World Channel. Her TEDx talk, sharing 10 ways to have a better conversation, has over 23 million total views to date. And her newest book, Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving, has just been released. Here is Celeste Headley. Celeste, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So I'd like to start off every interview with a few questions to help us to get to know you better as a leader and give us some insight for our own lives. So you ready for these? I'm ready. What is some lesson, saying, or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? Well, the biggest one that's had an influence on me is Stephen Covey. Uh, We're always listening, not with the intent to understand, but with the intent to reply. Um, I probably say that to myself, (laughs) if not every day at least every week still, um, because it's a constant reminder. I mean, I'm a conversational expert, but I still need those constant reminders. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is? A connector, a coach, and a leader is a cheerleader. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? Am I getting honest feedback? What is a book that you would recommend to leaders? The Wisdom of Crowds. Uh, The Wisdom of Crowds is a fairly short read, incredibly well-researched, and it's about why the most intelligent experts and most experienced experts in general do not outperform the group, how it's always better to get the opinion of a group, even an uneducated group, than it is a single consultant or expert. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would that thing be? Stop using email all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Check your email only once an hour. And finally, we have our arbitrary but insightful question, which is this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? Well, I'm a journalist, so uh, I'm always going to ask why first. I mean, why not is great, but I start with the why. 
Now, Celeste, we are here today to talk about your new book, Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving. But this is your third book. You have written two others. The first one is Herd Mentality, and that's H-E-A-R-D. And the second is We Need to Talk How to Have Conversations That Matter. Does your new book, Do Nothing, connect with these or is this a new venture for you? Yeah, it connects with the second book. The first book is is basically for uh, broadcasters. I mean, it's a very narrowly focused. It's here's how you create a broadcast or a podcast and here's how you do great interviews and be a great broadcaster. The second book we need to talk, when I was finished writing that, I was left with some important questions. And one of them was, if conversation is so good for us, and it, it really is, like um, a longitudinal study in the UK followed a giant group of men for a long period of time and found that based on how many quality social interactions they have, they could predict who would still be alive in 10 years with a fair degree hmm. of accuracy. Like that's how important conversation is for us. It lowers our heart rate, lowers our cortisol, makes us less likely to suffer heart disease. Like we are biologically designed to take benefit from it. And if that's true, and it is, why do we avoid it? So that was a question I couldn't, I didn't have the time to answer in the first book. And I started researching it after the first book, the second book, excuse me, was published. And what I discovered was that we, we honestly believe at this point that emailing and texting are faster and more efficient. And that's a delusion. (laughs) It's not true. We are so beautifully designed to capture information from someone's voice. Text of any kind just doesn't replace it. You know, I asked one neuroscientist if at some point text would be as effective and efficient as the voice in relaying information. And she said, yeah, it's possible in five to 10,000 years. So that begs the question, right? Like if emailing is not faster and not more efficient, and yet we believe it is, are there other things that we're doing that are also delusions? Are we sort of doing a bunch of stuff that's not making us better and more effective and happier, but making us sad (laughs) and and wasting our time? And it turns out there's actually a, a large number of them. Whenever you are trying to tell someone that they are delusional, that can be a difficult thing. <laughs> it is. <laughs> but you, you've undertaken it in, in this book. What are some of the delusions that we hold uh, about being being effective in what we do, whether it's communication or work or any other number of aspects of our life? Well, another big one is working long hours. We We actually are so deluded in believing that long hours are a good and a virtue that it goes beyond just the fact that we think we're more productive, which is not true, by the way, long hours are less productive. Um, I'll go into that in a minute, but they, we, we actually believe that someone who works really, really hard is also more virtuous. They're just a better person. Um, We feel bad if we're sitting there (laughs) not doing something. Um, We feel guilty. I I mean, a friend uh, was talking about being sick and how, guilty she felt resting <laughs> when she had bronchitis you know it's it's become this sickness um you ask most people how are you and their answer is busy so that's a big delusion this idea that long hours are more productive and and better they're not we we have studies going back to the 19th century showing that at a certain point working more hours actually is counterproductive they did a long study of a large group of scientists at the university of illinois 
and this is the 1950s, this predates our technology, and they found that the most productive were those who came in maybe 12 to 20 hours a week. The least productive of all of them were the ones who put in 50 hours or more. From that study, would they recommend that people work only 12 to 20 hours? Or how should we think about the work that we do and what makes us most effective and how we can operate most efficiently and most healthily? I mean, some of that's going to depend on the work that you're doing, but why on earth? Think about this for just a second. With all of the things that we have, the tools that we have, the computers and Xerox machines and everything else that we have that saves us time, why would you think that it takes longer for an accountant to do their job now than it did in 1960? Hmm. How does that make sense? Of course it doesn't. Of course it, it takes a shorter time for us to do our jobs than it did in decades past but we haven't taken the time off. If you actually told someone, as soon as you finish this list of tasks, you can go home, you would see how quickly people could get their work done. (laughs) (laughs) But we don't do that. We somehow still have this 19th century obsession that everyone has to put in 40 hours or more. It's, it's totally ludicrous. So I do think that the idea of, of having to work the same amount of hours no matter what, just, just because that's the policy, I think that's a, a wrong way of looking at things. At the same time, is there some level of, because of technology, we are working more and able to get more done? And h- how do we think about the, the combination of economic expansion and higher productivity, but also making sure that we don't do that in a way that runs us ragged? I mean, we don't have to worry about getting everything done in less time. We're very productive and we are in almost all industries. I I don't have the numbers on every single industry, but almost all of them much more productive as each year goes by. The the problem is, is that we've chosen to take, we we had a choice sometime when we, when productivity numbers really started to go up, the managers and, and corporate executives had a choice to take more productivity in terms of profit or in terms of giving people time off. So if you're making 500 computers a week in 1975, and in 2020, you're making 500 computers an hour, (laughs) you can either choose to sell that many more computers and take it as a profitability bonus, Mm -hmm. or you can say, okay, this is, we're, we're profitable at 500 a week. When you get 500 computers done, everyone go home. We had that choice in the middle of the 20th century. And obviously we all know what choice was made. The biggest sort of problem with all of it is that not only did corporate uh, America and corporate Britain and wherever else choose to take it in terms of profitability, meanwhile requiring that we all buy more in order to keep economies going, they did not profit share. So in other words, you've seen this gigantic gap in income inequality, and largely that is because they, they could have shared profits equally across all workers in a company, right? But instead, what we've seen is that most of those profits have gone to the top executives in a company, whereas the income for the average worker has stayed stagnant, or if you adjust for inflation, gone down in many cases. And part of that was because of this fear on the part of many managers that if they actually paid people 
um, larger sums of money, they'd stop working. This really seems like uh, you're talking at a more societal level that this this problem has developed and developed. And now as a society, we don't really know how to uh, operate in the healthiest way. Or even if we do know, we're kind of caught up with our own biases on how our lives should look as far as work goes. How do we begin to change that at a personal level? Or does this have to be a, a societal conversation? Both. You can start to change it on a personal level first, and then I'm hoping, I really, really hope that the the book will start a conversation even among the executives and the highest levels of leadership in around the country, around the world, actually. The, the way that you can do it personally is just to sort of reclaim your time. So part of the problem is that we don't always have a good uh, understanding of where our time is going. Mm. Um, most people today would tell you if you ask them that they work longer hours than people did in prior decades, that they're working more. And that's actually not true. We have kept very good time use surveys and time use data for a very long time. So we, we know how long, how many hours people have put in and we're, we're working less than we have in years past. The reason it feels like we're working more is there's a few reasons for it, but a big one is that we never leave work anymore. We never ever step out of the office because we're bringing our personal lives into the office, but we're also bringing the office with us everywhere we go. We're checking our email constantly. We check our texts constantly. We never leave. And to the brain, that is incredibly exhausting. Hmm. So um, on a personal level, I would say one of the things you can do is rebuild that boundary wall between your home and your office. If you have the flexibility where you can say to your uh, manager, I'm done, I'm gonna head home, do so or have that conversation with your manager. The problem is, is that we can't reward what we can't measure, right? And it's very hard to measure innovation and creativity, but it's extremely easy to measure how many hours your butt is at your desk. Sure. So that's sort of a management level change that needs to happen is we need to stop rewarding people based on the number of hours that they work and start rewarding them based on the quality of the work they're doing, whether they're meeting their deadlines, and very importantly, how good a team member they are, how well they work with the other people at the office. And this is a leadership podcast. And so as you're talking about having a conversation with your manager, another thing that I'm wondering is what would you recommend managers and leaders thinking about as far as how they communicate with the people that work for them or that are on their team? And how would you handle the responsibility of ensuring that things are happening, but at the same time, setting up healthy boundaries and expectations for those who work for you? The first thing I would say is that what you say is not nearly important as important as what you're doing. I realize that's a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. You know, I was giving a keynote and a workshop for a very, very large insurance company. And the CEO, unbeknownst to his employees, came in to the back and, and watched. And at one point, I asked that one of the women was asking about how do I escape from email? People are constantly emailing. I have to answer these emails and send these memos at like 10 o'clock at night and blah, 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 blah. And I said, does your CEO expect you to answer emails at 9 p.m. on a Saturday? And almost to a person, they all said, yes, we have to. And the CEO was completely flabbergasted. He couldn't believe 
they had gotten this message from him. He thought he was sending the message that they don't. Hmm. And yet they had their system set up so that these workers were receiving client emails at 9 p.m. on a Saturday. And the clients all think their issue is urgent. The, what that CEO needed to do, if that's really what where his priorities were, was to A, he himself needed to not send emails outside of work hours, but B, they need to set up a system to where if it's off hours, his workers aren't receiving emails from workers. You have to kind of back up what you say with action because what you're telling people is not matching, in many cases, what you're doing. And I, I will say this, that when that occurs, when your messaging doesn't match your actions, it leads to a, a huge rise in cynicism and a drop in morale as well. In your book, you talk about the cult of efficiency, and you've given some insight on how to have a conversation with your manager or setting expectations as a manager or a leader inside of an organization. But what else would you add that people should be thinking about so that they don't fall into this cult of efficiency anymore? The first thing you need to understand, people really need to understand how the human brain works. Because the human brain doesn't persist, it pulses. Meaning that we can't sit there and truly focus on our work for hours at a time. You can't. <laughs> Eventually, after, say, an hour or so of trying to do that, the quality of work goes down and things start to deteriorate. And you start making errors, a lot more errors. Hmm. We're designed to take regular breaks. So you can figure out for yourself where that thing is. I put some instructions in the book on how to figure that out. For me, I can work maybe 15 minutes at a time, 45 to 50 minutes at a time of good, focused work. And then I need to get up and take a break. I mean, a real break, not going to the break room and ranting about a worker or, or a coworker or anything like that, because that's you still working. Your brain doesn't distinguish between those two things. So you need to actually get outside the building. Take your lunch at a restaurant instead of at your desk. Take a real break. But again, focus on your work, get up, take a break, then go back and you can focus again. Most people can do that for maybe four to five hours a day, and that's it. That's all the focused work the brain has in it. <laughs> and, and then you can do something else. Um, <laughs> but you can't, you simply, putting your nose to the grindstone is counterproductive. It, it, it just, every single time we survey it, your work is full of errors, it's, it's less creative, it's less innovative, it's inaccurate. You're not getting done what you think you're getting done. And in your book, you talk about life hacks. It sounds like you have a, a, a bit of a love-hate relationship or maybe <laughs> even a hate relationship with life hacks. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. I, I'm, I'm not particularly fond of all these articles telling, saying, hack your morning or hack your shower. I actually saw an article like, here's how to get your shower done in only three and a half minutes. I was like, come on. Like, that's great for water conservation. But seriously, there's this awesome quote if you meditate where they say if you only have 15 minutes to meditate then you know meditate for 15 minutes if you don't have 15 minutes then meditate for 30 which means like if you really don't have five minutes for a shower it's time to examine <laughs> what's going on sure yeah we are human beings we are a biological system and not only that but we're social and emotional creatures we're human beings are not logical like if anyone is thinking that human beings are essentially rational and logical creatures, 
that is incorrect. So you can't hack us. We're not a computer. <laughs> you need to just find the things that, that work for you. If you read an article, say, um, all the successful CEOs wake up at 5 a.m., but that's not when your best time is, or that doesn't give you enough sleep, then don't do it. In the book, your, your alternative to life hacks you, you term them life backs. I think you're totally right. If you only have five minutes to spare in a day and you're trying to cut off another minute and a half, you're doing something wrong or you're looking at something the wrong way. What are those top recommendations that you would give to people to really help them to shirk the cult of efficiency and to feel like they have a better handle on their life so that they can live more intentionally and probably end up doing a lot better for themselves, not only as far as their their mental stability goes, but probably even their productivity. So let me go through like two or three of them. And the first one has to be awareness. I've already alluded to the fact that most people don't honestly know where their time is going. So you have to start by keeping a diary, um, which I did for several weeks. Um, every few hours, I would notate what I had did, done over the past hour or two, right? Here's what I did for a half hour. I spent about 15 minutes doing this, etc. And then I looked back through it and I was, the more honest you are, the more valuable this exercise is, by the way. Mm. Nobody's going to see it. They don't care if you spent 20 minutes looking at boots on Zappos. <laughs> Be honest. Because if I were to ask you, Josh, how much time a day do you think is reasonable for you to spend on social media? Total number, amount. How much per day would you like to spend? That's a tough question because... A lot of what I've begun doing for myself is using it to some degree for business purposes as well. But when it comes to personal use, what are you saying what I would like to or what, what I think, think is I should? reasonable per day? Okay, so look at it this way. How many hours per day are you awake? For me, it's probably higher than average, but I, I would say probably about 17 or 18. Okay, so let's say you're up for 17 hours and then you have to take out like, two to three hours for eating and <laughs> showering and stuff and getting dressed and stuff like that, right? So that takes you down to 14. And then however many hours of your work, let's say you work four hours a day during work, right? Um, which takes you down to six hours. <laughs> and then if you commute, let's take another hour off on average, which takes you down to five hours. So we're down to like maybe five hours a day that you have to yourself. And if I were to ask you how much of that time you want to spend doing social media, most people wouldn't say more than an hour. Sure. Because that's, you have very few free hours of the day. And yet, most people spend more than an hour on Facebook. So you kind of have to start there, is figuring out how you're using that to your time and how that matches up with how you want to use that time. That's number one. Number two, is um, to schedule idle time. Hmm. Schedule time in which you will do nothing. That doesn't mean you're, you're completely inactive. Idleness is an inactivity. It just means I schedule my time off. I, I sit down in the chair and I'm like, huh, okay, what do I want to do? And I suddenly notice the stuff that I promised myself I was going to do. Work on my embroidery, learn to play guitar. Like, fix this pair of pants that I had had sitting there forever. It's just these little things 
or stuff I might feel like doing, go over to my neighbors. But schedule that time in because as it stands right now is, is if you just say, oh, I'm gonna up the amount of time that I spend you know, with a hobby, you won't do it. You have to schedule it like you schedule the gym. And the last thing I will say uh, is do something nice for somebody every single day. And I could tell you to do that from the perspective of how generous that is and how kind it is to other people, but I'd rather focus on how good it is for you. It's incredibly good for you. We are evolutionarily primed to take benefit from generosity, something that Charles Darwin never fully understood, by the way, um, what caused it. But you see a massive, it's called the helper's high, and it's similar to the runner's high in terms of how good it makes you feel. Just do something nice for someone. Pay for the coffee of the person behind you in line. You know, call someone up and <laughs> give them a compliment. Um, every day, don't end the day until you've done something nice. Well, Celeste, I appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing with us about your new book, Do Nothing. Is there anything from the book or any insights that you have that we haven't been able to talk about yet that you think would be important for the listeners or things that you would just like to reiterate that you really want to make sure that we leave with today? Yeah, um, the main thing, especially since this is a leadership show, the main thing is that our current practices are not only bad for human beings, but they're bad for business. We are much more productive a, when there's a social network, like I can't even tell you how many times a manager would walk through and say, hey, quit talking and get back to work. Nope. <laughs> social um, chatting, idle chatting at work raises productivity by double digits. Mm. Um, in fact, one MIT researcher said the happy buzz of workplace chatter predicted productivity everywhere that looked. Wow. Yeah. Well, Celeste, thank you once again for joining the show. Where can people go to purchase do nothing, but also learn more about you and the work that you do. So if they just go to my website, celestehenley.com, I have a bunch of links. You can take your pick <laughs> where, where to buy it from, um, independent booksellers or Amazon or wherever your poison is. And there's also uh, plenty of information about new blogs and events and stuff like that. All right, Celeste, thank you. It has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm guessing that at least some part of today's interview was challenging to at least some of your assumptions. And I'm guessing that it was also a breath of fresh air for you. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow up with Celeste and check out her new book, Do Nothing. Now, the first of today's three key takeaways is related to our use of time. Celeste suggested that we reclaim our time by finding out where our hours are going. And to do this, keep a diary or a log of how you are using your time. And be honest, because you're not helping yourself if you're fibbing the numbers and if you're trying to hide stuff from yourself. The more honest you are with yourself, the more realistic of a picture you're going to get. And the point is to give yourself a clear picture, and to set yourself up for success. The second key takeaway is that many people feel like they're working more because they never really leave work. They take their work home with them, and because of this, it's necessary to rebuild boundaries in your life. You can think about what this means for yourself, but make sure you're rebuilding those boundaries in your life. And the final key takeaway is this, schedule idle time, time when you're doing nothing. Even though this may sound counterproductive to you, the truth is that a lot of people have a lot of their best ideas when they're not really doing anything, when they're not trying to think up great ideas, when they're not trying to come to new solutions. When your mind has time to relax, it can rest and it can also be creative. 
Now, be sure to come back for our second episode later this week because I'm going to be interviewing two adventurers who have just written a book about what leaders can learn from the wilderness. As always, it's going to be a great time, and I hope to see you there. But until then, keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist, it feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon. And until then, keep living and leading well.